as we come to the end of this chapter, uh, one thing is clear, and we've mentioned this from time to time, uh, and it's that the preacher of Hebrews is a, uh, an extremely competent instructor. Uh, probably in our own school experiences, we've had a teacher or two who had that way of giving instruction, uh, but then just, just leaving it to the rest of us to figure out how to really implement the fullness of that kind of teaching. So, so they might uh, run through a math lesson on the board real briefly and then turn the class loose to work on a set of problems on their own. Uh, but you notice as you begin to work out these problems on your own uh, that, that maybe while the teacher told you what you should do with this type of math problem, you're still at a bit of a loss with regard to what it actually looks like uh, to put the solution down on paper, to work that solution out for yourself on your own. You haven't had enough exposure to the process yet. And that can be a very frustrating environment to learn in. Uh, but as we've studied through Hebrews, and in particular as we've given attention to Hebrews chapter 11, um, what becomes clear is that the preacher of Hebrews is not that kind of teacher. Uh, he's not the kind who gives the instruction briefly and then just lets his students sort out the rest without any kind of guided practice. Uh, instead, the preacher here is the kind of instructor who gives uh, good teaching, and then along with that direct kind of instruction, he goes on and takes a great deal of time to work out what it looks like to implement these things that he's been speaking about. And those are always the best kind of teachers. And, and we've seen how the preacher of Hebrews has done this, in particular, as he's uh, worked out his exhortation to live by faith. Uh, so we're familiar with Hebrews now, but it, it just... Uh, repays us to think about this context just a little bit. Uh, we know that at the end of chapter 10, the preacher had made it really clear that there are two paths to consider as uh, we think about all this following Jesus business. So there's this path of, of drawing back from Jesus, which puts a person in a, in a place ultimately of destruction under God's judgment, or there's this posture of faith in Jesus, which is ultimately the way of salvation. So, so in light of the fact there are only two paths, either, either away from Jesus toward destruction and judgment or trusting in Jesus, which results in salvation, uh, given the fact there are these two paths, the preacher gives the obvious exhortation, live by faith. In fact, he quotes Habakkuk as he does that. The righteous one will live by his faith. Trust in God and his promises is what the preacher is saying. Uh, we're, we're called to live this life that reflects trusting and believing in God and his climactic promise-keeping powers that are expressed uh, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, so we must be those who live by faith. That's the, the direct instruction that he's given there. And so the obvious next concern for the first hearers of Hebrews, and it's the obvious next concern for us as well, um, after all, this is a matter of, of eternal redemption that we're talking about here. And, and, and so the matter of concern which we're now addressed with is, what does it look like to live by this faith uh, in such a way that would, that would be faithful to what He's called us to here? How, how do we live out this kind of uh, exhortation to a faithful life that's reflected in the preacher's exhortation? And the preacher knows we have that need, so in chapter 11, he gives us all these Old Testament examples of what it looks like to live a life uh, trusting in the power and promises of God. And as we come to verses 32 to 40 of chapter 11, we find ourselves now in this uh, final section of biographical help. And, and even in our reading, we notice that this section is a little different than the rest of the chapter. And it's different uh, because instead of a, a verse or a couple of verses maybe focusing on, on one person and a particular set of events in their life that uh, was exemplary of their belief, Instead, 
we have this almost uh, barrage of names and experiences of those who live by faith. There's, there's this final, uh, we could call it a biographical pileup at the end of the chapter, listing off a whole litany of further individuals and experiences that depict what it is to live by faith. And, and in the way the, the preacher references what's here, we, we do get a clue as to why he does what he does. Uh, because if, if you look at the beginning of verse 32, we can sense that the preacher's almost overwhelmed himself by the availability of biographical information that he's been sharing. So, so there, right there in verse 32, he says, what more can I say? What more can I say? Time would fail me to tell of all these other people and all these other instances. And, and you can tell he's a preacher because he says, time will fail me to tell about it. And then, and then what does he do? Well, he goes on to tell about it. We don't have time for this, but I'm going to take a little time and tell you about this, which is what he does, which any preacher can, uh, can identify with. There's not enough time to speak about all that we could talk about here, uh, so I'm just, going to, I'm just going to talk about it anyway. Right? And, and he does that to a degree. But, but, but we see what the preacher is realizing in that Hebrews 11 could go on and on and on, example after example after example of faith that's found in the Old Testament. And, and, and just as is the burden for all preachers, he knows time isn't his friend. Uh, people have to go to lunch, so he's got to bring things to a, to a conclusion here. And he does that by kind of uh, giving us this big wheelbarrow dump at the end. There's all this stuff, and, and it certainly is that. These verses reflect a kind of final uh, volley. They reflect a kind of uh, flurry of examples that depict uh, this, this life lived by faith. Uh, but while it might seem like the preacher is just getting out a bunch of final information in one big hurry, and he is doing that to a degree, um, even in this, he still shows himself to be a master teacher. But because what he does in this flurry of examples is provide us with very critical and summative truth that underpins what it looks like to live by faith on a, on a very significant scale. He, in fact, he doesn't just tell us what it is to, to live by faith, but he tells us how vitally necessary it is to consider this whole litany of people who have lived by faith and drive us ultimately to, to uh, directing our belief toward the sufficiency that's offered in Jesus. So, so we have really this wonderful climax to the chapter here. And, and, and while at first pass these verses might appear like just a big information dump, he's just got more to say. Now, any kind of does. But, but when it comes down to it, what we're given here are three uh, very crucial and necessary elements that must be properly understood if all the rest of this stuff he's been talking about with regard to a life of faith is going to be implemented with a kind of persevering grace. So, so there are three necessary elements that are here. And, um, and what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take each one in turn as we, as we finish out this chapter, starting first of all with verse 32 up through about the middle of verse 35. And uh, while there's a whole lot of information that's here, what we discover is that in these verses, the preacher has a primary concern to help us understand that living by faith involves extraordinary triumphs. It involves present, temporal, in this life, extraordinary triumphs. And he wants us to understand that well. So, so, so let, me, let me just read verse 32 up through the middle of 35 again um, for us, and then we'll, we'll look at it. You can follow along. So he said, what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith 
Now th think about the, the, the triumph represented in all of these things. Conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. So, so in, these per, in these verses, the preacher references uh, a number of different individuals. He references individuals by name, uh, really from the period of Judges up through the time of King David. And then, and then on top of that, he includes the prophets as a category of, of the faithful in Israel's history as well. And then he references some incidents like the stopping of the mouths of lions, uh, which of course remind us of, of Daniel's own experience as he's exiled there in Babylon. So, so a huge amount of time is covered here. Remember, he started all the way back uh, really with Genesis chapter 5 and the account of Enoch who walked with God. And he's taken us now all the way through uh, Israel's history in, 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 much of, in much of Hebrews 11. Um, so all of this time is covered here. But also, uh, while he's covering all this space, He's also highlighting these different triumphs of faith uh, as, he, as he lists them out for us. So we see in each of these instances uh, that it was ultimately trust in God and His purposes that ultimately underpinned the experiences of victory for these, uh, for these different individuals um, from, from conquering kingdoms under the, under the reign of King David. We remember how David was so mighty in battle. We think of Samuel and his, his righteous exercise of justice among the people of Israel um, and then there's that statement in verse 34 where we read that, that those who live by faith were made strong out of weakness. So, so God upheld those who were trusting in Him and used them, even though these, these saints of old often found themselves in weak positions. Uh, just in reference to the list here, immediately we think of Gideon, you know, who, who sent that massive army of Midianites uh, scrambling away with a mere 300 men because God gave him victory there. There's a power and weakness. So, so, so there are all these triumphs of faith, not least of all, a triumph over death itself. And we see that in the beginning of verse 35 where we read about these women who received back their dead by resurrection. So this makes us think of Elijah and Elisha's ministry, doesn't it? And, and, and in those ministries, both of the prophets uh, were used by the Lord to raise up two women's uh, sons who had died. And so clearly the point is being made for the first audience of Hebrews that it is through this posture of belief and trust in the living God that we find God's help for bringing us from despairing and weak situations into places of extraordinary well-being, even into places of great victory. And, and that would be a timely word of encouragement for the first hearers of Hebrews because as we know from our studies, they found themselves in a place of significant weakness. There was the social hostility where, where they were being harmed because of their uh, faith in the Lord Jesus. We know they were struggling with that internal spiritual apathy, that laziness that the preachers had to correct. Or temptation to go away from Christ is present in their life. And for this first audience, they would have needed this encouragement. And no doubt in their own lives of faith, they felt beat down by what they were experiencing. And of course, from these examples, then they could see that, that for those in positions of great need, God is the one who can bring about extraordinary uh, righteous relief and life for those who are trusting in Him, even in the experiences we have in this life. That the life of faith involves present extraordinary triumphs as God shows kindness to us. 
It's a truth that helps us as Christian believers counter what can otherwise be that kind of Eeyore mentality that can set in at times in our Christian life. For example, we can, we can be facing particular circumstances where it just seems like there's not a whole lot of hope on, on a large scale. It may involve you know, deep concerns and sorrows due to the landscape of our, of our current cultural situation. There's sorrow there. What, what could ever be done? It may involve concern for a loved one that seems so far from Christ. It may involve material concerns, wondering how we're going to make it until the next paycheck comes in. It may involve our own battles against residing sin that tangles us up. It may involve our own discouragement that comes as people let us down. These things are all very real for us. And as Christian believers, we can very much find ourselves in a posture where we live a life still trusting in God. We absolutely are still trusting in God. But there's a sense in which the immediate and present hope is drained from our existence. We can start thinking to ourselves, I know God can, uh, but He probably won't save that person I care about so much. After all, I've been praying for them for five years and nothing. I know God can, but is there really any point in, in getting down on my knees and telling Him about my negative account balance in the bank? After all, uh, will He really, will he really uh, bring something to help me in that material kind of need? I know God can, but would He really bring a kind of spiritual revival to this place that we need so badly? I know God can, but my current plan is just to basically hang my head until Jesus returns and, and let the little black rain cloud follow me around. And then these verses help to, to change that kind of outlook as it can develop and regularly can develop for us in the Christian life. They help us in this way. God gives this present help to people in very needy conditions. In fact, in fact, we have help here just as we think about the fact that, that every single person on this list had multiple failings of faith in their own life, just, just as they also had these great triumphs of faith. These are very real, uh, frail, sinful, grace-needing people here that are listed out here. You just think through the list. Gideon, Gideon, he, he, he was scared all the time. And then he ended up making that weird gold priestly garment after he won the battles. It was kind of like an idol to the people in his family and those around him. We read how they were all snared by it. Gideon was a weird little guy. Barak, he, he was too scared to go into battle. Even though, the Lord, even though the Lord told him to go into battle and he would win, he was too scared. So Deborah had to come along and say, okay, let's go. We got to do this thing. He was scared. Samson, we know all about his problems with Philistine women. Right? Jephthah, he made that very extremely ridiculous promise, stupid promise that actually cost him the life of his daughter. Do you remember that story? David, I mean, where to start with David? Right? Lies, adultery, murder, military cover-ups, long list. Right? Samuel, Samuel, you know, it turns out he was a great prophet for Israel, but his boys were completely looped out. He wasn't a good dad. And yet here they are, all these people listed out as exemplars of trusting. Failure, yes, but these are people who even in the midst of their deep failings trusted that even in this life the God of steadfast love, the God of unmerited kindness would hear their prayers and bring great triumphant help. Which again, would hit right at the center for the first audience of Hebrews. They were weak. They knew it. They were in danger of drifting. The preachers made that very clear to them. They'd just been chastised for their spiritual laziness. Does that mean that they're destined to live this gloomy life of faith with no real hope of timely help from God in the midst of their current concerns, which were many, remember from Hebrews 10? Does it mean that's it for us? No, no. Triumph 
comes for people in need of grace who trust in the one who gives that kind of mercy, even in the immediacy of the now. And this, of course, is absolutely true for us as, as well. We're weak, aren't we? We can admit that. We struggle. There are darknesses in our hearts. We've succumbed to temptation. We've been tangled up in sin. We, 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 we know the gloom of discouragement and, and, and dreams left unfulfilled and all of those kinds of things. Does that mean that in this life we're resigned to the rain cloud mentality of following Jesus, just hanging my head, ambling along until he finally comes back? I failed. Uh, the Lord probably won't give me big help in the now. Why bother? Is, is, is that where we're left in our weakness? Of course, the answer is no, absolutely not. We're not left. For those who trust, even amid great flaws, and flaws is putting it gently, even amid great flaws, for those who trust, there is present triumph as we look to the God who extends the supreme power of His unmerited kindness. And so, and so if we're really going to live by faith, we need to know this kind of truth. Living by faith includes extraordinary triumph. Just as a matter of reflection, I wonder if just now, I'm asking myself as I ask you, if, if, there's, if there's something or someone you've stopped hoping for or praying for, uh, j j just because of one reason or another, it just seems like it's not ever really going to happen, and you've, and you've in a sense, given up on that. Do, do we need to be humbly renewed in prayer to the God who does great things for those who rely upon Him in this life? And, and, so, and so that's first. Living by faith involves extraordinary triumph. And while that is absolutely and un, uh, unrelentingly true, we also know that that's not the entire picture. There's another true thing about a life of faith that we must also very clearly understand. Uh, because while lives of faith can experience extraordinary triumphs, living by faith can also involve extremely severe afflictions. Severe affliction. And that's what we see next. From the middle of verse 35 through verse 38. So I'm going to read that. In fact, let me, I'm going to start with the beginning of verse 35. Just so you can feel the contrast that's set up there. So women received their dead raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release. So that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. So it takes a little turn there in, in between those, uh, those two sections. Because what we see here in these verses is that those who live by faith uh, not only can experience significant triumphs in this life, but they can also endure great suffering and affliction. In fact, you notice even just how graphically it's highlighted here. But, uh, but what we need to point out is those who live by faith aren't just the triumphant faithful, but they're also the suffering faithful, so something that most preachers on cable channel 7026 seem to forget. Faith is not just a matter of times of well-being and relief in this life, but a life of faith can be a suffering life. And you see this just in the contrast of these two sections that the preacher brings out. But back in verse 34, for example, those who live by faith, what did those who live by faith do back in verse 34? They escaped the edge of the sword. What enormous triumph in that. They, they escaped a brutal death. They escaped the edge of the sword. Read verse 37, what, and what do we have? Those who live by faith, well, what happened to them? Well, they were killed by the edge of the sword. And worse. 
And, and, and then there's the effect of, 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 of general social exclusion that's here. There's that ostracization from society that's, that's depicted here. Um, with the material comforts gone, some lived in caves, holes in the ground. You know, we think about David himself who had all those victories, but at the same time, he was there uh, running from King Saul who wanted to kill him multiple times, sleeping on the floor of a cave. Um, David triumphed through faith, but David also suffered uh, because of his trust in God and his purposes. Uh, there were those who went about in sheep and, and goat skins, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of which the world was not worthy, the preacher tells us. So some have suffered and some do suffer because as they trust in God and His purposes, the world condemns them. Isn't that interesting? The world deems them unworthy. They're the ones who are not worthy of who we are as the world with all our glories and, and whatever else that represents, but actually quite the opposite is true. It's the world who's not worthy of those faithful sufferers. The, the economy of God scales are so vastly different than, than the popular view of the, of the wide world around us. We read here about how some believers suffered horrific deaths. Uh, we think of those who have suffered even recently at the hands of ISIS or, or other groups, the, the persecution uh, that has occurred off and on in India, North Korea, Nigeria, even recently. Uh, and, and what's amazing in all this is that the suffering endured by those who live by faith, that suffering doesn't have the ultimate effect of bringing about a kind of crushing agony and loss of hope in their life. That's the amazing thing. But instead... We have something quite different that's present here. We read in verse 35 that some were tortured, uh, refusing to accept release so that they might uh, obtain, attain a better resurrection. It's, it's another contrast with the first mention of resurrection in verse 35, which depending on your translation, it can translate it different ways. But we have resurrection and resurrection here. The first resurrection mentioned in verse 35 was where the woman received back their dead by resurrection. So we think of those uh, uh, ladies under the ministries of Elijah and, and Elisha. There was the widow of Zarephath. There was the Shunammite woman who both received their sons back from their dead. But of course, those, those uh, resurrections uh, were only resurrections in the temporal sense. Those boys were brought back to life, but they would one day die again. There's temporal relief there, to be sure. Obviously, that's a point of extreme joy. What a miracle that took place there. But again, it wasn't ultimate. And for those who live by faith in the midst of extraordinary afflictions, you see how, how their faith wasn't on the immediate hope of temporal deliverance. They suffer in, excuse, in, in excruciating ways as listed here, but their hope isn't calibrated by temporal relief. Instead, it's set, for example, on a better resurrection. A better resurrection, not a resurrection uh, to, to, to a mere renewal in this life only to die again. But these faithful afflicted saints knew that ultimately for those who trusted in the God of life, uh, death would not be the final word for them. So, so come sword, come, come torture, come social expulsion, all of these different things that they, were, that they were facing, they knew that could not be the final word for them. So as the, as the folk singers try to put well, and we'll excuse some uh, theological uh, d difficulties here, we, we, can, we can appreciate the lyrics. They sing things like, when I go, don't cry for me. You know, In my father's arms I'll be. Right? And then the, the line is, wounds this world left on my soul will all be healed and I'll be whole. Right? Living by faith involves severe affliction, but that affliction is not ultimately a crusher of faith. Instead, what happens is it becomes this glorious prover of faith's residency in our hearts as those who suffer are compelled to set their truest hope on what Jesus has procured for us in the life to come, something that can never be taken away. 
And, and clearly, there's a, a critical lesson for us in that truth. Uh, because in the days of, 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 of dangers and toils and snares, like, like we may experience, in those days, the first audience of Hebrews experienced, on days when, when isolation, hurt, deep damage seems to control the minds of God's people, our hearts and lives can be so affected. On those difficult days, obviously a first and righteous priority is, is prayer and to work for the relief of those conditions. Of course we go that direction. However, it's not the presence of temporal relief that controls our persevering faith. Sometimes those pains or, or, or the awareness of their, of their possible presence, sometimes those pains go on in this life until the end. The concerns, they go on until the end. In fact, Job teaches us that. Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And then we think to ourselves, well, you know, Job came out so well in the end. God blessed him with so much more uh, that, that, uh, after all of that suffering than he had before. But let's not forget that Job had learned that you can't know the full purposes of God. God's wisdom is way beyond ours. And while all that stuff came back and more, when Job lay down at night, his faith in God had to be settled on the fact that the affliction he experienced may very well be affliction he experienced again. And in this life, all could be gone but he's going to trust him. True faith doesn't judge the relieving power of God by a constantly victorious present. Instead, true faith rightly assesses the guaranteed relieving power of God based on the eternality of the promise of his everlasting rest through Jesus Christ. We're living for that other world, that heavenly world, a world for which Jesus has made us worthy. And so we take a very realistic encouragement from this truth as well. Living by faith not only involves extraordinary triumphs, but, but it also at times involves severe affliction. In fact, during the 16th and 17th century, uh, Christians endured great persecution in Scotland. And, uh, and there was this book put together by a man named John Howey. He published it first in 1870. Banner of Truth has since uh, republished it. But, but in this book... There's just a, a pile of, of short mini-biographies of all these people who stood firm uh, during a time of great persecution in Scotland, standing firm for Christ under horrific conditions. It's kind of like a, a footnote to Hebrews chapter 11, just demonstrating the fact that these kinds of things can go on. And, and I'd encourage you to get a copy of it. It's Banner of Truth, maybe Amazon, I'm sure. Well, who knows these days? Maybe they have it. Um, but, but it's a wonderful book. The, the value in a book like this, just like the value in chapter 11, helps us as we come to something and realize, you know, this, these are very dark days for me and I'm, very, I'm struggling under the weight of all these things. I, I, I don't know if I can be faithful to Jesus during these harsh times that I'm facing. And then we read some of these stories and our, and our faith is uplifted, recognizing that there are some who have gone before who Christ has given enormous grace to endure horrific things. And as he's given that grace and they've testified to him, we're built up ourselves in terms of going forward in that kind of, in that kind of grace. Too, and so I would I would commend this to you if you if you if you'd like the Scots Worthies is what it's called, um, but but it's a it's a good uh, homework assignment after studying Hebrews chapter eleven. Point being, in in, in all of this, um, we have we have these critical elements of, of of a life of faith worked out for us here, and they not only involve uh, the, the the immediacy of God's kindness toward us in temporal triumphs in this life, uh, but that life of faith can also involve extraordinary and severe afflictions, and both uh, can be expected, and both must be embraced in that life of faith. So we have that. 
We, we, get, we get through verse 38, two, two significant um, pillars, if you like, to hold up our understanding of what uh, we expect and how this living by faith works. And, and we get to the end of verse 38, and then there's two verses left in chapter 11. Um, and, and we need to consider those two verses uh, just because they, they actually pr- prove to be such a, a, a glorious climax to all that's been said so far in, in, in the chapter. Um, and, so, and so let's just give a moment to think about these as we wrap things up. And, and uh, you can have an eye on them. As you think about uh, these verses, we want to think about them very specifically in relationship to the situation the first audience of Hebrews was in, what the preacher was addressing. Um, and, and we know all through Hebrews, the one big thing that the preacher has been seeking to counter in these believers' lives is, is, this, is this temptation they have to go back to the Old Covenant, to that Old Testament form of worship and that way of relating to God. And so the preacher, what has he been saying all throughout uh, Hebrews so far, so far? He's been saying, you can't go back to the Old All the old pointed forward to the sufficient and planned provision that would come through the better sacrifice of Jesus, through the better priesthood of Jesus. Jesus offers a better rest than that land of Canaan initially that the the people of Israel entered into. Um, Jesus brings us this better place of the glories of God's salvation and promises. All of these things are there for us in Christ alone. So don't go back to that Old Testament framework, that Old Covenant framework. Don't go there, he's saying. You're tempted to go back to Levitical forms of worship, all of that, but there's no true purification for us in that. It all pointed forward to what Jesus accomplished. That's what he's been pressing the whole time throughout this letter. And then what does he do? Well, in chapter 11, he gives all these wonderful examples of Old Testament faith. Wonderful examples. And if you're sitting in the congregation connecting the dots, you might be sitting there and thinking to yourself that you've just caught the preacher in a corner of his own making. Isn't that fun to do? Hey, preacher, I thought you said that the Old Testament framework couldn't save, and yet look at this big, huge list of exemplars of God's gift of saving faith. See, preacher, maybe we actually can go back to that old way after all. Seemed to work pretty well for Moses and David and all the rest here. You didn't have anything bad to say about them. You, you can see how a thinking person might have figured that, that, that they got a one-up on the preacher's theology here after all this chapter 11 example of faith business. Apparently, the old covenant provided just fine for God's people. Look at all these lives you're calling us to imitate. And the preacher knows that people might be thinking in these ways. He's a good pastor. He considers these things. So what does he do in verses 39 and 40? Well, he makes sure his audience knows that even for the Old Testament saints, there was no salvation except what was ultimately accomplished by Jesus. There's no salvation ever anywhere apart from Jesus Christ. Verses 39 and 40, let me just read them. All these were approved through their faith. That approved, remember, brings us back to the beginning of the chapter. All these, in a sense, had that smile of God upon them. But they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. Now, uh, to to, to really grasp this, we've got to pay a little attention to this word translated perfect here at the end of verse 40. Because it's the preacher to the Hebrews is one of his favorite words. So is it more in Hebrews than any other book in the New Testament? All through Hebrews, it's a word that the preacher uses on the one hand to speak about Jesus' absolute fitness to be our Savior. You can read about that in chapters 2, 5, and 7. 
And then it's also a word that's repeatedly used to speak of the absolute insufficiency of the old covenant to save. You can read about that in chapter 7, 9, and 10. And then this perfect word, as it's translated here, is also used to describe what Jesus obtains for us through his sacrifice in chapter 10, verse 14. So, So there we're told that by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's a word that speaks to the completeness of our salvation that's found only through the climactic capabilities of Jesus. So here in verses 39 and 40, we're told that even for the saints of old, there was no ultimate perfection in this sense. There's no ultimate right standing before God for them in that old system. Instead, their salvation rests in the fact that they trusted in God to save, but even their own sins would not be finally covered until this better sacrifice was offered. Their own sins weren't finally dealt with until Jesus came. Now, now that didn't mean that that believers in the Old Testament died and were in judgment until Jesus came. No, it doesn't mean that. In fact, the Apostle Paul sheds light on this in Romans chapter 3 when he talks about uh, this very same subject where he says, in God's divine forbearance, so in God's godly patience, he's saying, he passed over former sins, So that is the sins of those believers in the Old Testament. God didn't immediately pass judgment on them. Instead, he passed over former sins, which, Paul says, was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in what? Old Testament systems? No, the one who has faith in Jesus. And so verse 39 and 40 here, once again, they direct our attention to the exclusivity of Christ. There is not salvation, Old Testament or new, or anything else. There's no salvation apart from trusting in Jesus to pay for our sins, which we actually see um, if if we're bothered by by something that that pops up here in in this passage, uh, comparing verses 33 and 39. Verse 33, we read about how these Old Testament saints, what did they do? They obtained all these promises. Amazing. And we think about that. Abraham had Isaac. He obtained a promise from God. Uh, Great promises were brought to bear. But then at the same time in verse 39, what does verse 39 tell us? They did not obtain what was promised. What what do we do with that? They obtained promises. They didn't obtain what is promised. But you see, the ultimate point is being made here that the full yes and amen to God's promises, to use Paul's terminology, that yes and amen to God's promises only comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, there's no ultimate realization of all God has promised to provide. You, you want to be connected with the faith of the Old Testament believers. You want to know how those Old Testament believers were saved. It wasn't because the Levitical law was sufficient to save them. That's been the point all along. God was patient until the sacrifice of Christ had been offered. And based on Christ's sacrifice, these people now uh, were, were sanctified and made pure through that. It wasn't until our time, he's saying to them, Now we can be joined with them. You want to to be united with the Old Testament people of God. This is how you're united with them. You're united in Christ. He's the one who can make us pure. Which which is actually uh, indicated in kind of a a creative way just as we think about the characters that were mentioned here. I mean, David, that's a good character to mention at the beginning. He's, He's a pretty big deal. We know about David. But what about some of these others? Barak, Jephthah, you know. When was the last time you, uh, could you find them in Judges? You know, kind of these obscure characters. Here's the fascinating thing about those obscure characters. They had extraordinary moral flaws. And flaws is too pleasant of a word. They were sinful people, right? Samson, when you think Samson, what do you think? 
Strong guy who failed miserably to serve the Lord until we remember the end of his life. And there he is, turning to God in faith. There's great examples of faith. We think about these people and we think about their moral failures, and yet here we read about them in the New Testament on the other side of the cross. And you find a passage in the New Testament that has one negative thing to say about those Old Testament characters who are so deeply flawed. You can't find it. Why is that? Because it's that glorious picture in the new covenant that on the other side of the cross, these are all made pure before God, just like we're made pure before God in the sufficient work of Jesus Christ. And it's driving that point home. Without Jesus, there's no ultimate realization of all that God has promised. The preacher's basically getting to the end of all this and, make, and helping them say, you must understand Jesus paid it all. Jesus calls sinners to trust in Him and be forgiven. Jesus purifies us for the presence of God. Jesus secures us as His people, leading us to our heavenly home. It's Jesus, only Jesus, who now has come. This is the glory of the age we live in. We live in this time where we're perfected through Christ before God's throne. Even now, as Jesus came and offered that sacrifice, He has come and He's going to come again. And it is in Him that we must render, uh, or to Him that we must render our entire life of trust and obedience. There's no other way to go. So we put these things together and we just see the, 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 the extraordinarily helpful instruction that this preacher is giving. Live by faith. Okay, how do I do that? Let me show you all these examples of what that looks like. Oh, that actually looks pretty good. Maybe we will go back this way after all. No, 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 no. You need to understand all of this is driving us to the very big point. Living by faith is something that involves extraordinary triumphs. That's true. Living by faith sometimes involves severe afflictions. That's true. Living by faith, though, always, always, always is looking to Jesus, which is exactly where he's going to start in chapter 12, which we'll see next time. So, so. We just check ourselves by this. Do we have faith? Do we have that gift of God that's in us like a title deed to heaven in our heart? Do we know that in Christ all things are and will be made new for us? Do we have that glorious rest and trust as we realize the significance of what has been procured for us through the person of Jesus Christ? And as we rest in that truth, as we meditate on that truth, uh, we can be compelled to not only persevere, but live, live lives from a great position of comfort, even in the midst of things that are extraordinarily afflicting and uncomfortable. We know we have Christ, and in Him we have everything. And so we're thankful for the, uh, for the, for the lessons that the preacher gives us here in this chapter, and we pray that it's useful uh, for us. In fact, let's, let's pray together now. So, Father, we ask that you would Give us the grace we need to believe and respond. Father, we feel our frailty. We know our own weakness. We're thankful that uh, through Christ, those weaknesses do not separate us from you, but instead uh, you have separated all our sins from us. Everything that would otherwise alienate us from your presence forever has been eternally removed as Christ took that upon himself and paid the price. We pray, Father, that we would be trusting in that resting in the fact that before you were new and pure and made perfect because of who Jesus is. May we love him. May we follow him. May we see him as our king forever. We ask this in his name. Amen.